Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Tonight on Piers Morgan Uncensored with me, Richard Tice. And me, Isabel Oakeshott. Kwasi Kwarteng held the nation's purse string as the British economy imploded. His friend and ally Liz Truss fired him to save her own job, which she lost anyway just six days later. Tonight, in his first live interview since the 44 days that changed political history, Kwasi Kwarteng joins us in the studio. Plus, almost two million British people use illicit black market cannabis to manage their medical conditions. Is it time to relax the law and possibly even tax it? We'll debate that as well. Live from London, this is Here's Morgan Uncensored with Richard Tice and Isabel Oakeshott. Well, he was a man who had it all, blessed with a brilliant brain. He was a King's Scholar at Eton, got a double first at Cambridge. He was a Kennedy Scholar at Harvard and then he added a PhD to his name. His first taste of the limelight was way back in 1995 when he was a member of the team that won the BBC quiz show University Challenge. After a stint in the city, he landed one of the safest seats in the country, becoming a Conservative MP in 2010. He then worked his way up to the second most powerful political position in the country as Britain's first black chancellor. Kwasi Kwarteng is one of those annoying people that are good at almost everything, except perhaps looking after our cash, because within 38 days of his appointment to the Treasury, it was all over. His first budget had blown up and his close friend and political ally Liz Truss had thrown him to the wolves in a vain attempt to save her own skin. And in the ultimate humiliation, he actually learned he was about to be fired when he read it on Twitter. Well, reeling from one of the most shocking political betrayals in modern history, and amid accusations he'd crashed the economy, Quasi, quite understandably, went to ground. Now he's finally ready to talk live about how his career went up in smoke, along with his vision for the UK economy. Well, the former Chancellor Quasi Kwarteng joins us now. Hello. Thanks for being with us. You blew that pretty badly, didn't you, Kwasi? Well, it was a turbulent time. I mean, we can laugh about it, but we were trying to do a serious thing. We tried to reduce uh, the tax uh, burden on this country. And uh, we were caught in a a real firestorm. And I think um, it's a shame what happened. Uh, I do regret some of the things that we did in terms of the speed. 
But I think the general direction in terms of lowering tax was right. Well, look, before we get on to all that, I, I want to just step back a minute. I mean, this is your first uh, live interview since you left office. Sure. You're, you're kind of off the leash, aren't you? I mean, previously, you've always had to watch what you say because you were in Cabinet for a very long time. Well, quite a long time. I mean, I was, in, I was a minister or a PPS of the Chancellor, which is, you know, very... Uh, it's technically a back venture, but you're yeah. kind of on the... But you on still the have to watch what you yeah, say. Yeah, you're part of what they call the payroll. So I hope you're not going to hold back. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to speak uh, as, as freely as I, I can. But, but what I would say is that I was in those jobs as a PPS, whatever, for about seven years. Yes. Um, and now this is the first time, really, since 2015, I think, probably 2014, that I've had a live interview as, as a backbencher. Well, look, um, before we move on to all things economic, which I know Rich is absolutely itching to sure. get into, let's talk for a minute about Nicola Sturgeon. Yeah. Um, you know, this is the big story of the week. Absolutely. Um, what do you make of her sudden resignation? I think it's been fascinating. Uh, I mean, I just found out about it uh, again on Twitter. Um, and it was very sudden. I mean, she said, oh, she'd been thinking about it a lot. But really, the straw that broke the camel's back, as you'll remember, was the, uh, I think he was called Adam Graham mm. when he was a man. And then he had surgery and, and was called Isla Bryson. Mm -hmm. And this man had been convicted of rape twice and then was put into a, a woman's uh, a prison, which defies all common sense. And I think Nicola trying to, to say that this was the right thing to do, and she got herself into lots of knots, was really the straw that broke the camel's back. Her, her, her ratings uh, plunged. And essentially, her woke agenda ended up blowing up in her face. I mean, she got herself into a hell of a muddle, as you say. Um, I don't know whether you remember the clip of her getting into a real yeah. twist over the definition of a woman and, you know, uh, whether a trans woman is a woman. What is a woman as far as you're concerned? Well, a woman is somebody like my mother who, gave, who gives birth... Uh, or can has, has the uh, capacity to give birth uh, to children. Uh, the question that she got into a pickle over is, are trans women women? Well, that was, that was a great... I mean, I don't think biologically they are. I think you can call them what you will, but biologically they clearly aren't. It's, they extraordinary, aren't it's extraordinary how so many senior politicians are getting in such a pickle. I mean, it's, it's pretty <laughs> obvious. It's pretty basic stuff, isn't it, it? It is, but I think the woke agenda has just taken over. And for Nicola... I mean, she's a very able politician. I mean, to her credit... She's lasted eight years, which is a lot longer than certainly I was Chancellor. <laughs> but, 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 but actually, she got herself into a terrible pickle on uh, these quite basic issues. And I think the woke agenda essentially just... just I mean, took her but the course. truth is, and you talk about the woke agenda as if it exists, sort of, has a life of its own, but the truth is that the woke agenda is pretty rife throughout all our institutions now. I mean, take the NHS, for example. Um, do you think your own party may possibly have been a bit too timid on, on these issues? No, I think if you speak to people like uh, Kemi Badnock or Michael Gove, uh, they, they've been pretty clear about, about, you know, fundamentals on this. And I think it's very easy for people, politicians, to get completely muddled and defy common sense. And I think if you speak to people like Kemi Badnock, others in the Conservative Party, there is very much a common sense approach uh, to a lot of these questions. OK. Um, just let's move on, because there's been a, recently some mm. pretty awful, apparently racially aggravated mm. uh, attacks, including one, um, I believe, alleged in your own constituency. Yeah. Um, that's obviously going to fuel claims that Britain is a racist society. What's your take on that? So my view broadly is that Britain... I mean, you look at any country in the world, Britain is a pretty tolerant place. I mean, you look at, you know, the fact the Prime Minister is from an ethnic background... Uh, I was in cabinets with lots of colleagues who are from uh, ethnic backgrounds. That's, that's a huge deal. 
Um, that doesn't mean that there is no racism in Britain. I mean, that's uh, you too ever, Do you feel that you've ever, in, yeah, in your whole life, have you ever yeah, encountered I, look, it? Look, I can tell you, growing up in the 80s in London was, was much more uh, racially aggravated, much, there was much more tension uh, than there is today. I mean, you'd regularly get abuse on the tube right. um, frequently. Um, there was open uh, hostility to ethnic minorities in a way that you don't see very much today. Now, I'm not saying it's a, a perfect world that we live in mm. in terms of racial harmony. There are still outstanding issues. But I think Britain has come a very long way uh, in the 40 years that I've, I can remember. I mean, in the firestorm after your um, resignation or firing, however mm. we're going to call it, um, you know, all sorts of stuff was being hurled at you. Yeah. Was there any racially motivated I didn't stuff really um, get involved in that. I mean, yeah. I'm not a Twitter warrior. I deliberately avoid getting down those uh, rabbit holes because yeah. you can get into all sorts of fights. You know, some of my colleagues are tweeting all the time. Yeah. And they're in these kind of crazy battles. So I avoided that. Um, and I wasn't really plugged into a lot of that criticism. Did you go into hiding somewhat? No, well, the, the, when you're getting doorstepped, yeah. uh, as I was, yeah. uh, by media, I, I just um, fled. Um, and Where so they, did you they, go? I'm not going to say. <laughs> but I... Because I, 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 I knew what would happen. I knew yeah. that they would... And every day... There were people, but after about four or five days, the story moved on. So when I came so back to, to my house, I came back to my house. There was nobody there. It was about six days later. The, right. the truth was, though, Liz Truss made a catastrophic mistake firing you. I mean, you were in it together, That's and you right. had to survive it together. Yeah. And I think I think we've got a, a clip here of her trying to sort of defend that decision. Oh, that, yeah. Let's let's just look at that. See, you know, I'm. I can't, I can't say it was anything but extremely difficult, but he was in Washington at the time at the um, IMF meeting. And you know, I was getting some very serious warnings from senior officials that the, you know, there could be a potential market meltdown the following week if I didn't take action. And I needed to do as much as I could to indicate that things were different. So, I mean, how do you, how do you I get feel, that. But how I do mean, you feel watching that clip? I mean, I was looking at your expression. Um, you look pretty pissed off, I have to well, say. Well, look, you know, the, the fact was she had a very successful leadership campaign, which was all about not putting up tax. And I was very clear, and I said it in, repeatedly, that we were going to be joined at the hip, and that was what I was there to do. And so I was in Washington, as, you, as, as uh, she mentioned, and I was summoned back. I should have stayed an extra day. And my thinking was, well, this is just going to you know, create more drama. Sh should you have gone at all? Because actually, so it was the truth the, was, there was sort of... There, there was, there was, it was conspiratorial of, activity going on behind your back whilst maybe, you were there. Maybe, but it was one of those things. If I hadn't gone, it would have been a massive deal. It was six of one, half a dozen of the other. You were damned if you did, you were damned if you didn't. If I hadn't gone... It would have been the first time since God knows when that a British Chancellor hadn't gone to the annual meeting yeah. in the IMF, and that would have been the story. So she, um, she's... so so that that you know it was it was a difficult call. She said she had no option. I'm quoting here. She had no option but to sack you. Do you agree? Well, of course I, I don't agree. I mean, I, I think we could have um, we should have actually worked together. But you know, I'm not. But here you should to... have toughed it out. Do you think? Well, I mean, tough it out. I think I think the one thing that I would say is that in any political, as a general point, in any difficulty, in any, um, you know, uh, a strong, stressful uh, situation, 
where people are buffeting, you know, there are lots of people buffeting around. The one thing you have to do is, you know, you've got to, I think, keep a, have a very calm approach. Mm. But leadership... And that was what, that was what I wanted to do. Um, and I thought summoning me back a day before the... Everyone could see. I mean, it was... My plane was being tracked, you know, by thousands of people. Um, and, and it just shone a huge light on the fact that there was this turmoil. But, you know, it's, these are finely judged, so finely you... balanced questions. And the Prime Minister, you know, was, was, was advised. She took a difficult decision. She said, it, it, to me, it was a difficult decision. But at that point, when I was sacked, I knew that there wouldn't be much longer of her premiership. And, and actually, I think I was, it was reported uh, Did, in the Sunday Do you think Times. that she panicked? Well, look, I mean, I don't want to relive, relive all Would of that. Would that be fair? But, I, I, I mean, if the, if, the, if the argument was, I'm going to sack my Chancellor so that I can prolong my political life, mm. I don't think six days uh, was a sign of, of massive success in that. Do you feel let down by your officials, uh, possibly by the sacking of Tom Scholar, and, indeed, let down by the Bank of England? If they'd acted differently on that Monday morning, if they'd started buying some bonds, things could have been very, very different. Well, they'd been committed to that. I think the whole... Um, t- I think Tom Scholar, I've said, I said it publicly at the time, it's been forgotten, was an excellent uh, civil servant. But he'd been there 30 years. Well, you, but you fired and, him. And we, yeah, I know, you know, but he was. And he got a knighthood. And they, and the, the, the press said, oh, this is a, a total... Um, you know, it shows that they got it wrong. But he'd had 30 years... Um, and we felt that it was time for him and to move about, on. what about the Bank of England? I think the governor of the bank, I got on quite well uh, with him in the short time I was uh, working with him. People had said that um, they had, you know, interest rates hadn't gone up uh, quickly enough. There was, there was a lot of chatter around that. Um, but I had a good working relationship with the governor. Well, what was quite extraordinary is that having sacked you, uh, Liz Truss then chose Jeremy Hunt mm. As your replacement. Now, she's not close to Jeremy Hunt, so where did that idea come from? Well, I, I don't know. You'd have to ask the Prime Minister. But I, I think it was, it's quite odd that in her essay she's been uh, talking about the, uh, you know, the fact that the Treasury did this and did that. But she appointed Jeremy Hunt. I mean, that was... Do you, you, think, know, someone told, do you think someone no, told her to? No, I don't to? think so. I think she, she had a Why good measure Why did she do of, it then? Um, because she wanted to stabilise the markets. I think they had... Uh, I think Jeremy did a good job in that. Uh, and it's very much now, you know, let's try and stabilise things and not and not uh, get too excitable, not try and agitate. How would you uh, characterise Hunt's ideology? I think I think it's a very orthodox um, treasury uh, uh, ideology. I mean, so, the, so pretty boring and not going to. No, lead it's not boring. I mean, look, it's not it's not about being boring or being exciting. It's about an approach yeah. to economic management. Yeah, and I well, think what he's doing is is trying to stabilise the market. That's what he's been brought in to do by Liz Truss. Right. And, and Liz who appointed him. It wasn't Rishi. Yeah. OK, well, next tonight, the gloves are off. We'll be talking Brexit. We'll be talking net zero with the former Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Well, the former Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng is still with us and it's time to talk budget before Brexit. Yeah, well, yeah, before we get on to Brexit, the budget's looming now. Um, Fortunately for you, you're not in charge. Um, (laughs) But clearly something has to be done about the tax burden, doesn't it? It's way too high. Well, look, I mean, that was the whole premise of the leadership contest that we had in the summer, which Liz won. But, of course, you know, what happened in, in October or September happened and now we've got a new Prime Minister and a new Chancellor and their job and I think they're doing a good job at it, actually, is to try and stabilise uh, the markets, which they have done. I think that's been successful. And they've always said 
that they want to reduce taxes when uh, it's appropriate to do so. <laughs> yeah, the but the question is, when, when is that? We, well, the, the reality is we've got companies like AstraZeneca, Britain's biggest publicly listed company, announcing this week that they're setting up a new base yeah. in Dublin. Um, you know, citing tax reasons, did, by yeah. the way, because corporation tax is so much lower there. Uh, how do you see the implications of that? Look, so I think that we had... Uh, Will mean, there be more that do that? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think, I'm, I mean I've always been very clear about the fact that I don't think high tax, you, you get to prosperity by um, high taxes. I don't think that's the route I to mean, do it. Is, is Some there a risk do. that a growing number of wealth creators are just going to leave the country? There's always a risk. When you put taxes up, there's always a risk that people who generate wealth um, decide to, to up sticks and go somewhere else. And that's what Pascal Sorio, the head of AstraZeneca, who I know... Um, and I used to speak to when I was uh, business secretary. Um, he, made that, he made that very clear in his statement. And how do you feel about that? I think it's regrettable. I think they're a great company, and I'd w I hope they would come back and, and maybe reconsider their decision. But, right, I mean, okay, on to Brexit. <laughs> come on. Quasi, you, you're a Brexiteer. You yeah, saw absolutely. it as a, a great opportunity. Definitely. And for three years, you were first a Minister of State in the Department right. of Business, and That's then you right. became... Secretary of yeah. State, and as a Secretary of State for Business mm. in a Brexit government, mm. I mean, the whole thing was take control of our money, our laws and our borders. Yeah. You had a great opportunity to start to cut back on the mountain of daft, bureaucratic yeah. EU laws, and you did nothing about no, it. No, we did. We started on that. I mean, the, Jacob was brought in, Jacob Rees-Mogg was brought in uh, as a minister in the Cabinet Office. We looked at regulation. We've got a bill that's coming through which is going to get rid of a lot of the... The EU regulation. But, but in reality, come on, you no, know no, that did, bill's no, we, not going to go through. No, I think it has a chance. I don't... I has, never has a chance. Let's that's talk about it. I never prejudge. I never prejudge legislation, but that's clearly the statement of the intent of the government. But the, yes, but the establishment is trying to delay it now by three or four years to 2026. You know, we left in nine, at the end of 19. The end of the transition period was the end of 20. That's right. We Brexiteers, we said to the country, we'd deregulate, we'd go for growth, we'd cut taxes, we'd control our borders. Yeah. You had a major opportunity to cut and we did, regulation, we, and you really didn't start. We did start. I mean, the, the thing I would say about the whole EU debate, a bit of perspective, we were in this thing. We were in the EU for nearly 50 years, certainly before I was born, OK? And I think that a lot of... It won't take 50 years to get the benefits. It shouldn't do. But having, having been this... We're under having, pressure now. Having been in it for 50 years, I think it was a lot to expect that immediately we left, suddenly everything would be uh, hunky-dory. That wasn't... Realistic, And the other thing that people have forgotten about, and you, you mentioned my whatever departments I was in, I was also in the Brexit department for about nine months. So even more opportunity then, that but, you didn't but, take but, advantage but, of. Yeah, but at that time, Richard, you'll remember, in 2017, we didn't have a majority. I mean, it was a completely confused situation in terms of where the parliament no, I, was. I, I accepted in 2017. And, uh, to between 2017 and 19, so for, for three years, essentially, but between, we be were in gridlock... And then Boris actually managed to, to liberate the, uh, the grid lock. Then COVID came three months yeah, later. But, but, but you, and you, we weren't, were... you weren't involved with COVID. You should have been preparing all of this stuff to just slash and burn these daft regulations. And you didn't. We, we, had, a, we had a legislation. We, had, we, had, we have legislation in place. I worked on that. Jacob has worked on that. And it's going through the House of the Parliament. Well, right. rather than raking over what's now ancient history, what about where we are now? Yeah. Do you think... I mean, we've got... Jeremy Hunt in, the, in mm. number 11, um, he was a Remainer. Mm. Um, Rishi Sunak was a Brexiteer. Yeah, was. I don't know whether he's a convincing one. Uh, you've heard about the Ditchley Park gatherings. Yeah, I don't know about... I mean, I've been gathering. to those gatherings. You sadly weren't invited to that I wasn't invited, funnily mm. enough. Um, um, I mean, do you, is there a danger that there is a move to slide us back into the EU? I think 
there is a risk of that, absolutely. I think that... But, I mean, you heard, I think, Michael Heseltine say this earlier um, on your show. He, he just says, well, oh, the Brexiteers have messed it up, then let's go back into the EU. And, they, of course, they're not stupid. They're not going to say, oh, let's rejoin the EU. But they'll dress it up in some form of, of words, which essentially means it will be the EU. And on elements terms, of your own party? On worse terms. I don't know. I think the party is committed. I know the Prime Minister, uh, Rishi, is committed... What about Jeremy ..to delivering Hunt? on uh, Brexit. Well, the Prime Minister, I mean, he's but, running the government, so he's the one. It, it's one thing having left... Yeah. But you've got to take advantage of the opportunities. And two years later, after the end of the transition period, yeah. you've got nothing as a government, as a Conservative Party, to show for it. I think we've got quite a lot to show for it, actually. Like I mean, if, you look, if you look at the, the big debate, in the, and you'll remember this because we were on the same side, was the amount we were putting into the EU, OK? That was 10 billion... In the, in the old budget uh, framework, it was 10 billion a year. It would have been more in the, 20, in, in the new budget framework. That's, so if you think that's nearly six years of where we would be paying 10 billion a year, that's a lot of money. What okay? about, what about your record money. on controlling borders? So on borders, at least we've got an immigration policy that <laughs> we said... The policy doesn't count for anything. No, no one cares about a policy, quasi. We want no, to control our borders. No, no, policy does matter because what was happening before is that we were having 150,000 people coming into the country that we had no control over whatsoever. Have you got any now, control over the migrant boats? I think we are trying to get uh, more of a grip on that. But have we you have got a lot any more... grip on it at the moment? But in terms of immigration, Isabel, yeah. we have a lot more say. We've got a lot more uh, control of what our policy so, is than we did when we were in the The current Home Secretary admitted that you had lost control of the borders. She's, she's, she admitted that to, I believe, a select committee. I didn't see... Last year, to June 2022, and the year to June, was the highest ever uh, lawful immigration. So, essentially, you've sold to the nation as a government... You've sold a pup. You said Brexit was all about controlling our borders and we've got record levels of lawful immigration and we've got record levels of unlawful so immigration. So Brexit, as I remember, was not about banning it all immigration. No. Okay? no. But, but it, it wasn't about that. It wasn't about going up to record levels up at the top no, of the mountain. No, but, you know, for the... Need, and, I, and I'm someone who I think we should be able to attract the best talent... Absolutely agree with ..into that. the country. I don't, I don't see any problem with that. And in many instances, people still want to come here, which is, is a good thing. Is that is talent thing. coming over on boats? No, I mean, <laughs> they've got to do it legally, OK? Right. It's got to be legal. It can't be trafficking, it can't be Because I feel like you're kind of defending your government's record. And remember, you are a backbencher now, so no, you, can, you can speak freely. So, so I, I, I am, but I'm also a team player. So how I mean, do you, I find it very frustrating. Feel, how do you honestly feel about the never-ending numbers coming over illegally Look, on both. How do you really feel about it's it? It's extremely frustrating. Aren't you embarrassed? And also... Well, I'm not embarrassed. Well, you should be. I'm, 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 I'm focused on trying to come up with solutions. And the other thing that I'm, I would stress is that, you know, there are too many people who, are, you know, having been ministers, go on the back benches and then just freely slag off the government and don't give the measure of support. When they were ministers, they expected backbenchers to support them. Well, so they should be supporting as backbenchers for government. Talking of support, obviously, one of the things that you were involved with was, was the price of energy, the cost yeah, yeah. of energy, which was going through the roof. Yeah. And essentially, the cost of energy is... It's the other side of the net zero coin. Yeah. That is the reality. And we've now got a situation where the government's subsidising people's energy bills yeah. and we've got businesses... We talked touched on AstraZeneca. The other massive problem for businesses is the cost of energy. Yeah. The car industry is collapsing. Ford just yesterday announced 1,300 layoffs as they move towards electrification. Yeah, there JLR. are 3,000 across right. Europe. Yeah, I mean, but, there's but, a context but here. JLR are moving production overseas mainly because of the cost of energy and to do with net zero. The steel industry is begging for hundreds of millions mm. of handouts because of the cost of energy, because of net zero. Many other firms, particularly hospitality, pubs, mm. restaurants, 
Their energy bills are going through the roof. They're shutting when they get off their existing tariffs. This is all because of net zero. It's all, all the, because it's, of net zero. It's not all about The cost that. of energy, right, is directly linked to the move towards renewables. We're subsidising 11 billion to offshore, yeah. re, offshore wind farms. There's another 5 billion of uh, balancing costs that people have to pay for. So and, look, and the truth is, net zero is making us poorer, it's making us colder, and you are responsible. No, look, I, I totally disagree with you. The idea that net zero, just burning more coal and, and, and burning fossil fuels is the, is the future, I think, is wrong. It's false. If you look at the costs of energy, what was driving it in the winter of 2021 was the fact that China essentially came out of COVID restrictions and there was huge demand coming out of China for gas and that pushed the price up. And the second double whammy we had was, of course, Putin's invasion but of Ukraine. We're, that sitting, had nothing to do. we're sitting on that a century's worth of our own cheap energy do. treasure that oh, you as a government... Look, 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 it's look. not just fracking. We've got, we've got onshore gas. We've got onshore oil. Yeah, we do. We've got we're exploiting coal. those. We've got all these things. We're not, we're not exploiting so them. So did you see the profits of Centrica today? Yeah, that's a lot of that's from, from British that, from that, gas. That's yeah, from the North Sea. That's what they're doing. But the reality is we've got all this shale gas. Yeah. You and Liz briefly... Uh, wanted to sort of. I was never that. a big fracker no, because I realised but, but that there was it? a big politi funny, political problem. You, you there. say that the cost of energy is nothing you can do about it. In America, the cost of their um, energy, their gas, is a quarter of ours. Why? Because they're fracking. Because so they're look, using so their own I'll, domestic energy. So I'll give you, they're self-reliant on it. And, and you, as a government, have bottled it. So look, in Wyoming, there are two people per square kilometre. Okay, in Lancashire, where there was uh, some preliminary fracking right. uh, undertaken, it's about 450 people. Okay. So your ability to get through any political pressures by fracking in Wyoming is far greater than is the case wow. in England so, and in Lancashire. So, so, final question, final question. Is there a risk the net zero agenda has gone too far? I think the net zero agenda is absolutely the right agenda. Oh, you're you going to say that. You do. Do you really? <laughs> I think it's... Yeah, absolutely. You are destroying this country's no, economy. No. You are making people on. poorer. No, 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 no. The idea that you can burn Quasi. coal like we did in the 50s forever and ever... Thank you so much. ...is completely absurd. Thank you Thank so you. much for joining us. It's <laughs> gone way too quick. We'll have to have you back <laughs> on again. Thank you, Quasi Quarteng. Next tonight, we will get reaction from tonight's stellar panel, including Alison Pearson, on the Dominic Raab bullying accusations. Lucky we didn't ask you about that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. Well, joining us in the studio now are Talk TV contributor Paula Rode-Adrienne and for the first time on Piers Morgan Uncensored, Daily Telegraph columnist, best-selling author, Alison Pearson. Well, you've been listening to the interview there with the former Chancellor, the first time he gave a live extended interview. I'll come to you, Alison, first. You're a Brexiteer. Um, how do you feel he, he dealt with the, the criticisms? Uh, he was being very diplomatic, wasn't he? He was praising the present government uh, quite a lot. I'm going to put my cards on the table, Richard and Isabel. I would rather Kwasi Kwarteng was still the chance of the Exchequer than Jeremy Hunt. Jeremy Hunt, who, when he was uh, campaigning for, uh, for the Tory leadership, said he was going to cut corporation tax to 15%. He's now going to raise it from 19% to 25%. I think that uh, Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss were on the right lines. They just decided to do everything on the same day. And that backfired politically. I think economically they were much more sound than what's going on at the moment. I mean, interestingly, he really did emphatically fail to endorse Jeremy Hunt as someone with whom Brexit can be trusted, didn't he? He, he kept coming yeah, back. Well, yeah. I think the Prime Minister definitely agrees <laughs> yes, with Brexit. Yes, that, yeah. uh, so I sense that you know, he, he was being quite guarded on some of this because I think ultimately Quasi is a team player. Yes. Um, and that is why, yeah. uh, you know, his firing by his one of his oldest political friends was so shocking because he'd yeah. always said Absolutely. privately that he would never, ever stitch her up. And then he did that. And he's beginning, Paula, to talk a little bit more openly about how that felt, isn't he? He is, and it's good to hear. However, what I'd hoped to hear today was, first of all, a very clear apology. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. To the <laughs> hundreds you were and that. thousands of people who are now facing the possibility of losing their homes, if not an increase in their mortgage rates um, and mortgage repayments of up to £500. I'm not sure That's that ridiculous. Was, I'm not sure that that was actually Kwasi Kwarteng's fault. I mean, Richard, you, you know, you're better on these issues. Yeah, look, the, the reality was that, is that inflation was going up, so interest rates had to go up. Actually, the Bank of England, I think, raised them uh, too slowly, and, and hindsight's an easy thing. Mm. Um, but, yeah, there's no question there was a massive crisis, short-term crisis, uh, that was then stabilised, and that was their own fault, without question. Absolutely. And, and we know that because that's where all the professionals point to. And secondly, of course, we also know that on the first day that Mr Quartan was in office, he was offered the opportunity to consider the OBR's independent review, uh, independent assessment, and, and he refused to do well, that. Well, if you actually... I don't know whether you read Liz Truss's article. Oh, so she wrote yeah. it... Was in, I think in it was in your paper, In the Sunday Telegraph, yeah. So Liz Truss, words, yeah. her coming out from the wherever she's been hiding, uh, wrote a long defence, an explanation of, of what they did. Um, and she addressed that point specifically about the OBR. She said that it would not... It would have been incredibly unusual for them to have given an assessment on what was a, a an emergency statement um, and that that in itself would have been 
semi-meaningless. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here because they because of the way their modelling works. So there was a rationale for not doing that. But, but look, the reality is she accepts that they didn't communicate this well. Mm. They didn't prepare the ground for it. I thought it was quite interesting, um, Alison, what he had to say on on the culture wars uh, and, mm. you know, uh, the resignation of Nicola Sturgeon yes. being the first example of... Uh, you know, the extreme woke agenda really hitting the buffers. Yes, and that's been a great victory, actually, for the Conservative government, a rare, a rare victory, actually. I mean, the Rishi Sunak um, mm. invoking, I think it's Article 35 of the Scotland Act, to stop this thing in its tracks. I mean, actually, someone was joking this week that Nicola Sturgeon may have gone, but she could be back as Nicola Sturgeon. Oh, because, crikey. Uh, please. <laughs> Not <going> there. <laughs> but... Poor Nicola. You no, know, if you think about it, that, that absolutely appalling thing that she tried to push through. Mm. We did have, as Kwasi Kwarteng was saying, we had this double rapist um, who halfway through his trial decided that he was going yeah. to be called Isla yeah. and would have been allowed to go to a, a woman's prison. Um, yeah, and I think this is a very strong issue, issue for the Tories. But I think just, just coming back quickly to the economics thing, I think Kwasi Kwarteng was being quite loyal uh, to Liz Truss because I understand that there were certain things in the package that he didn't want lowering the top rate of tax um, from 45 to 40. He didn't think they should do it all at once. And that's where it came unstuck, Richard, don't you think? I think so. But, Paul, do you th also think that... Uh, I asked, pushed him quite hard about mm. the Bank of England, about mm. some of the people around him, and I think he was very... He was very coy, yes. but I suspect... Or cagey. That cagey, <laughs> you I might suspect want to say. he felt yes. let okay, down by, by a very lot of people cagey. around him. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean... <laughs> The problem is he was let down by a lot of people because it seems that they didn't include the right people in terms of those important decisions. That, that may and be a everybody fair point. was caught yeah, off yeah. guard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, look, we want to talk about Dominic Raab, yes. don't we? Mm. Because I know, Alison, you feel very strongly uh, about the minister who's under a lot of pressure over a number of yeah. bullying allegations. Yes. Um, I know Dominic Raab. I've never detected that side to his personality. But then again... I don't work for him. For me, the thing that concerns me is a pattern of behaviour emerging whereby mm. unelected, unaccountable, anonymous civil servants yes. are able to challenge a democratically elected and appointed politician running a department because they find them a little bit too tough. Yes, I mean, I think there are, I think there are eight formal complaints of bullying mm. against in which Dominic Raab denies... Uh, it's now under investigation by a KC. Um, what struck me was, I mean, you shouldn't laugh because bullying, proper bullying is very, very serious. Mm. And if you've ever experienced it, it's completely horrible. But some of the leaking, the endless leaking, I mean, some of the complaints are just farcical. I mean, They're it has become farcical. The hard stares. And there, I think there's hard a clip, staring. isn't there, Angela... Uh, Rayner accused him of throwing throwing a tomato or something. Well, I, I, think, mean, he, I is, think he opened let, his lunchtime salad and... and oh, no, let, let's, let's see if yeah. we can listen to, to that clip. Now the Prime Minister defends his deputy whose behaviour has been described as abrasive, controlling and demeaning. With junior staff, Mr Speaker, too scared to even enter his office. And that's without mentioning the flying tomatoes. The Deputy Prime Minister knows his behaviour is unacceptable. So what's he still doing here? Deputy Prime Minister. 
Mr Speaker, I am here and happy to address any specific point she wishes to make. Uh, the, the, well, that never happened, uh, she says from a sedentary position, and I uh, will thoroughly rebut and refute any of the claims that have been made. I'm now regretting that we didn't bring some tomatoes in to, to, to chuck at you two, although with the matching white jacket. jacket. With cherry tomatoes, allegedly, and he didn't throw them, he dropped them into a paper bag. It'd be bag. dangerous with you two mm. with yeah, your white absolutely. jackets on, wouldn't it be? I mean, look, Paula, you're probably a bit more sympathetic, you know, you're, to, the, to the, those who are supposedly the victims of this tough behaviour. Well, I think we have to be careful. Of course we do, because there are formal complaints that have been raised against Dominic Raab. What I don't understand is that when you are a manager and you are aware that allegations are being made against you, because I noticed that Rishi Sunak is pointing out that he was never aware of any informal, um, uh, never aware of any formal um, allegations being made, only since recently. This jumping around about informal, formal, come on. We've all worked in an office. If somebody's saying something about you, you know about it. And what I'm concerned about is, as a manager, if you are hearing people say something, challenge it, deal with it, well, and he didn't. we can always rely on Paula to see the softer side. <laughs> the right side. Next. Right side. Tonight, millions are risking prosecution by buying cannabis illegally to ease medical symptoms. So should politicians look at relaxing the law on using weed for medicinal purposes? That date debate is coming up next. And welcome back to Piers Morgan Uncensored. Well, should we take another look at relaxing the law on cannabis for medicinal use? It's currently a Class B drug, which means you risk five years in prison or an unlimited fine if you're caught in possession of it. And yet, since November 2018, specialist NHS doctors have actually been allowed to prescribe cannabis for conditions like severe epilepsy and multiple sclerosis. And the UK also has... 23 private medical cannabis clinics which can actually prescribe it for a far wider set of conditions. It comes either as an oil in a capsule or even it can be vaped. But new figures suggest that last year nearly 2 million people got hold of cannabis illegally to alleviate pain and, and medical symptoms. So, does the law need a rethink? Or would it create a two-tier system where the rich could access medicinal cannabis, and the less well-off couldn't. Well, joining us now in the studio is Professor Mike Barnes, Chair of the Cannabis Industry Council and a former consultant neurologist and former Conservative Cabinet Minister Anne Widdicombe. Well, Richard, this is one of your favourite topics, so I'm going to let you lead on this well, I think it's. I think it's <clears throat> so important that we try and get this right. I think, Mike, there are some 71 countries that in various ways have yes. legalised cannabis to a degree. That's right. I think we are, uh, if not... I think we're the largest grower and exporter of cannabis for medicinal purposes, and yet right. yes. it's really tough to be able to use it if you're suffering yeah. pain and symptoms here in the UK. Yes, it's an anomaly, isn't it, that we're the largest exporter of cannabis in the world, yet all that is grown in this country is exported, and all the supply in this country is imported which is a crazy situation. It's very difficult to get. All bar four prescriptions are private. There's now about 25,000 people who've been prescribed privately in the UK, which is progress. When, as you say, you compare that to nearly two million 
who take it every day for medical purposes, we're not talking about recreational use here, mm. uh, then that's a tiny, tiny and, and number. And from a health perspective, two million people getting it illicitly... Yeah. And, then two, and two million in Britain? In Britain. Yes. Yeah. Wow, I mean, yeah. that is extraordinary. And, and then, Where do those figures come from? There was a YouGov poll. Right. Uh, it was about 1.4 million pre-COVID, and it's run up to actually 1.8 million post-COVID, which does also show probably an impact of COVID or an impact of the publicity surrounding the legality of cannabis now. People realise they can't get it, so what do they do? They go to the illicit market uh, to get it instead. I mean, I was going to ask you about um, how... What are the kind of figures involved economically? I mean, I was guessing mm. that actually they weren't huge. You're talking about the import-export ludicrous situation. Yeah. Um, what's this market worth for medicinal purposes? Well, the patients who have to be private spend about an average of £500 a month. £6,000 oh, That's wow. an awful lot of well, money. That excludes, whatever, 90% plus the population, which is disgraceful, really, considering it is legal. The NHS can prescribe it. We don't need to change the law. Um, so it's, it's odd. And, and, and they're, vape they're vaping it all generally oils or...? Um, most of the prescriptions are for oil and uh, vape, about 50-50. So what would you like to see happen, then? I'd like to see it come on the NHS mm. and make that happen. I think we need to do two main things. One is to allow GPs to prescribe, to initiate prescription. At the moment, they can't. It's hospital doctors only, mm. which I think is silly and wrong. And secondly, is the guidelines are rather restrictive. Uh, nice um, produced guidelines were rather anti-cannabis. Well, let's, let's, let's bring in Anne Widdicombe yeah. uh, onto this debate. And good evening. Thanks for being with us on yeah. this. Look, um, if people are suffering pain and uh, cannabis is a way of, of relieving that suffering, there's nothing wrong with that, is there, Anne? There's quite a lot of drugs, as you well know, that you can't get simply because you want them. Uh, they have to be prescribed. They have to be prescribed after careful examination, etc., etc. Uh, and at the moment, cannabis is one of those drugs. There was a time when it wasn't prescribed at all. Uh, but it can now be prescribed. Um, and, I mean, an obvious example, you can't just go and get morphine. You know, it's, it's got to be prescribed. Um, and there's no good reason I can see... Uh, why you shouldn't be able just to go and get cannabis. And one of the things that worries me about it is, um, you know, we're accepting this figure of two million, which has been extracted from a poll. Mm. Uh, but I wouldn't be at all surprised uh, if people were using it recreationally, yeah. uh, but saying that they were using it for medicinal purposes. There's got to be some control. I mean, I have never been in favour, as well, you know, Richard, of legalising cannabis, because I think it will drive all the profits of the drug barons into the hard drugs because we know a certain percentage go through the gateway into hard drugs. So I've never been in favour of its legalisation. I have always said that if the government's medical advisers told them uh, that it should be prescribed uh, for medicinal purposes, that was something completely different. And that indeed has happened. I mean, Anne makes a good point there, doesn't she, Professor, that, that of, I don't really believe this two million figure that are really using it for medicinal purposes. Isn't this just a kind of cover for, you know, trying to... Have a bit no, of a... I, I don't think so. If you look at other countries where it has become much more readily available, the, the rough indication is about 2 to 3% of the population. That's worldwide, mm. looking at the countries that have collected those statistics. You move that to the UK, and it's 1.5 to 2 million. Now, clearly, as Anna said, there's a bit of an overlap, obviously. There are some people who have pain, and they enjoy the relaxation that a recreational high would so give So their pain them. might just be a little headache or something? Well, I, don't, I think you're underestimating. I think there's a... There's a lot of genuine people 
Mm. Let's call it a little less than 2 million, if you like, because of that overlap area. But there's at least 1.5 million people of worldwide experience that really do suffer chronic long-term conditions who would be helped by cannabis. Um, and what is the risk, Mike, of people getting addicted to uh, these prescriptions in the way that people can get addicted to uh, many other drugs that are yeah. prescribed? I mean, that's clearly a big concern that people like Anne may have. It's virtually not a concern if it's prescribed properly medically, because a doctor will, who knows what they're doing will exclude some people who've got risk factors. Um, or the obvious one is psychosis or schizophrenia or some heart conditions. Um, you, you take those out, they're not safe to be prescribed, generally speaking. But they, they prescribe it safely, they prescribe it uh, modestly. We're not talking about the levels you get in, in recreational cannabis right. by any means. Right. Okay. And without confusing things, the THC is the component that gets people high. That has medical value. So it wouldn't really work CBD. for... CBD... Sorry to interrupt. Let, no, no, let, let you finish. But, but yeah. if it's low level, yeah. um, would it work for people who are depressed, you know, mood... It and, does. It, it does, about, OK. About a third of the prescriptions are for those with anxiety, particularly. Right. But other related conditions, such as depression, PTSD... But does it then not like affect that. their ability to actually get on with doing a job? No, it doesn't if it's prescribed properly. There are, right. there are cannabis varieties that can sedate people. They want to help them sleep. Uh, but there's others that, that alert them so that they can go about their day and, perfectly normally. And if you accept that carefully prescribed, yep. uh, there can be benefits, where are you, Anne, on the sort of the balance between private clinics, where there seem to be only 23 at the moment, which clearly is a drop in the ocean, and the NHS? Is this something the NHS should be doing? Well, of course, the NHS is already, as we, we heard in your introduction, can already uh, prescribe. Uh, I need a lot of convincing, frankly, that doctors who are very heavily pressured at the moment um, are going to uh, be able to prescribe each individual very carefully. We already know. It's no big secret. We already know that they overprescribe antibiotics mm. because of patient pressure. We know that. Um, we know the dangers of endless repeat prescriptions. We know all of that. And the idea that this is somehow going to be different, it isn't. And so I think we need to be mighty, mighty careful. I'm glad that the NHS can prescribe where it's necessary, um, but it must be very heavily controlled, and it is at the moment, and it won't be if we just open it up to GPs. And how worried would you be, Anne, about people on medical prescriptions getting addicted to it? Um... Well, cannabis can be addictive, we know that. I would be far more worried about, you know, the gateway to the harder drugs, which are very seriously addicted. Um, so that's a concern, but it's not my major concern. My major concern is control over the prescribing, which I just don't believe uh, would exist. Search your own cabinets for antibiotics. You know, that's what happens. Why not just go for the whole relaxation completely? I mean, what about recreational use? Perhaps you're more relaxed about that too. No, I think that's, that's a different agenda. It's a perfectly valid socio-political mm. debate. But I don't want to talk about that because that would, I think, detract from getting the medical prescription right. We need to get the medical prescription right. I think if you open it up to everybody, mm. people will go down to their local shop, pharmacy, get the cannabis without that supervision, without knowing what to take and how to take it. So I think it's really important to get some medical control over the system. So I, I would rather get the medical thing right and then we can have a separate national debate on recreational use. I mean, that's what you, what you want to do is just a free-for-all, isn't it? No, no, I, 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 think we've got, I think we've got to look at it really carefully. I think there's a huge hypocrisy about uh, exporting, being a huge exporter for medicinal purposes and not properly being able to use it mm. ourselves. I, I, I am interested in Anne's point that uh, 
you know, it's going to be hard for doctors to get the prescriptions right. But I, I think we ought to be able to do that. And I, I really worry that at the moment, basically, if you're really suffering pain and if, if it works for you, but that's only if you're rich and wealthy and you can afford to yeah, go to one you, of those you also want it, You also yeah. want it to be free for all for, for recreational I, use. I, I, think, I, think, I think we've got to have a proper grown-up national debate about it mm. uh, and, and look at it. Um, but you shouldn't rush things. But the first bit is, is where it's relieving pain and clearly helping, then, th then, then why prevent people? Why make it so difficult? And I think in the NHS it really is clearly very hard. It's very difficult. What Anne said was, it was prescribed in the NHS, but that's four prescriptions, Anne. You know, four. Yeah. I mean, I, that's I, nothing. I find it weird that you're so kind of passionate about this issue because you've never even tried it, have you? No, I haven't, but that, I mean, you, <laughs> no, you don't I have to try feel... something to, to... You don't have to try something, well, actually, you always I have think, a view. I think you do, actually. I mean, oh, have you I... got your own experiences well, that you want well, to reveal? Well, you know I have. <laughs> I mean, I, I've tried it. I tried it in <laughs> Seattle, which where it's legal, by the way, um, and I had a really bad experience. I had far too much. It did not go well. I had, a, you know, one of these jelly things, and I thought I'll have half, and nothing happened at all. So I thought I'd have a bit more, and then a bit more, and then, boy, boom, you know, this was yeah. not good. Uh, and that has actually affected my, my view on this. I think it's very, very difficult to, to control. But I think uh, if you had anyway, it properly um, prescribed, you wouldn't have had that experience. No, I don't think exactly. I want... I, I'm not going to try that again. You were a bit too bullish, I think. I think I probably was. Well, look, thank you very much, uh, Professor, you. for coming in, and thank you, Anne. Uh, and that is it from us. Piers is going to be back from his, from uh, live from New York City next week from Monday. And whatever you're up to, make sure it's uncensored. Good night. Good night. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.